All right, we are turning our Bibles to Luke chapter number one. Uh, Luke chapter number one today. For today's message, I want to encourage us as a church family to adore the sovereign Savior. Um, I, I want to motivate you, I want to encourage you, I want to direct you, um, even now during this Christmas season, um, that your heart's posture towards the sovereign Savior would be one of adoration. That adoration would be your response as you consider this passage this morning, and really that adoration would be what marks you as you go throughout this Christmas season. Um, So, uh, we're going to Luke 1, and uh, let's read this passage. Uh, Luke 1, I'll read for you. Luke 1, 46 down through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. We're going to be looking at these words this morning uh, really for uh, a couple reasons. because I get to preach on occasions. I just finished the Lord's Prayer the last time I was able to, to preach, and I'm always looking for something that'll give me a little bit of direction for the next time I'm going to be uh, preaching. And um, what I want to do with my uh, future preaching opportunities here is really work through songs and sermons of the Bible. Um, there's lots of sermons actually within our Bibles, and there's lots of songs within our Bibles. And so um, that's what I'm going to be doing, uh, Lord willing, when I have opportunities to preach here. And, uh, and so this particular song um, that we have, um, my attention was drawn to it um, in part uh, because of the Christmas season, uh, in part because um, our daughter Raina um, got to be in the pageant, and there was lots and lots of quoting of this passage. Uh, so um, she got to say this passage, and so it was every night at family devotions she was um, reciting this passage, standing up in front of us. Um, we've heard a lot of what is known as the Magnificat in our home, uh, and so the more I thought about it, the more I thought I'd, I'd love for us to consider this passage together uh, today, and and really at the heart of this passage um, is adoration for a Savior who's sovereign over, over all things. Um, I mentioned it's called the Magnificat. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard it called that, that before, but really the, the term the Magnificat is, is on these verses uh, because it's the first word in the Latin translation of, of the Bible. In fact, there's three different songs about Jesus' birth um, that all use a, a Latin title for them, and so this one's called the Magnificat. Um, it doesn't necessarily make you a better Christian to, to know that, um, but um, Christians for literally hundreds of years have been calling this the Magnificat, so it's probably good for us to know that as well. Um, and so uh, the, the focus of even calling it the Magnificat come because of that word, my soul magnifies, that's that word, magnifies the Lord. Um, and this concept of magnification and rejoicing, uh, I think is also summed up in a word that, that I'm using for our big idea today, which is adoration, that we ought to be adoring the the sovereign savior, all right? And, and so as we work through, through, through this song of Mary, um, I want us to just consider two points today. Uh, number one, as, as I try to encourage you, um, motivate you, um, promote adoration uh, this Christmas season, I want you to consider what the sovereign savior has done for you personally, and then secondly, to see what the sovereign savior does in his world. And I think you'll see that that's exactly what Mary is doing um, in this song. 
okay? So uh, it starts out, and Mary said. And the words that follow, and Mary said, are words that are full of theology. They are words that are full of Old Testament scripture. They are words packed with meaning, um, all within the beauty of poetry, Uh, In fact, these words are so great and so rich and so dense uh, that unfortunately there have been some um, critics that have have arisen over the years that have said, this is is in fact too rich of a song for a poor, uneducated girl to have written and to have penned. And so we have to say that maybe Luke helped her out a little bit by putting it together or or someone else else helped her. Um, I'm sure you're all going to be completely shocked by this, all right? So buckle those seatbelts this morning. Um, when it says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, um, I'm going to go ahead and go with uh, Mary was the one that said it. So I know you're all completely surprised by this, um, but when our text tells us Mary said, um, you can rely on the word of God. Um, What this passage does, as we understand it, being from the words and from the heart of Mary, they remind us of the power of the word of God on the mind and the heart of a human being. Because what Mary does so often throughout this song is she reflects Old Testament passages, passages she would have heard over and over and over again as a girl, Uh, passages that she would have heard um, when uh, she would have gone on Saturdays, passages she would have heard read, passages she would have heard rabbis refer to. Mary would have heard these Old Testament passages, and clearly they didn't just sink into her mind, they sunk into her very heart. And that's part of what we need to be encouraged to join with Mary in our heartfelt adoration, right? So um, what is it that Mary says? Well, she, she says this song in response, and I know we're just diving into, into Luke 1, but um, you know the story. An angel has already appeared to Mary, an angel has already told her um, that she didn't have to be afraid, but, but she would conceive and bear a son, and his name would be called Jesus. He'd be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God would give him the throne of his father David, and he would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there would be no end. She'd already been told all that, right? So the answer uh, to Mary, did you know? If it is anything in those verses, the answer is yes, Mary did know, right? Angel told Mary, these, all these things are true, right? Um, he's going to be great, son of the most high, throne of his father David. And, and Mary rightly says, how is this possible since I'm a virgin? And the angel explains that it's actually the Holy Spirit that would overshadow her, and the child to be born to her would be called holy. He would be the son of God, right? This is news that would have rocked any young girl's life. But but what she's told is he would be called the son of God. And and her response to all this message, as well as her going to visit Elizabeth, and and then as she walks up to Elizabeth, Elizabeth says that that her own baby given to her, um, also in miraculous terms, leapt in the womb because that baby understood that that Mary and and Jesus were present there. And and Mary and Elizabeth give this amazing um, blessing to her as well. She says, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. All of those things have led up to this response of Mary, that she would respond with this heartfelt song of adoration and praise, right? So that's all the backdrop to, to what gets Mary to saying these things. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, 
This is kind of like the title over the rest of the song. This is what the whole song hangs on, is this declaration that my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in in God, my Savior. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, she's referring to everything in her inner being. Like, at, the, at, at her core of her, of her inner being. What are, what are we talking about when we say our inner being? Well, the Bible describes our heart or our soul as being where we think, right? Um, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? So our thinking comes from our hearts or our souls. Um, our, our souls, our spirits, or you could also call it our heart, that's also where our feelings come from, right? And so the disciples at point, their hearts were overwhelmed, Right? So our hearts have a sense of feeling, and yet our hearts are also where our choices come from. Right? Um, out of the abundance of the heart is how the mouth speaks and what precedes a whole bunch of other activities. Right? So our souls, our heart, is where our thinking and feeling and choosing is. And what Mary is saying when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices, is that her thinking is in terms of adoration of this, of this great God. Right? Her feeling, what, what's driving her emotions in this moment is her understanding of God, her Savior, what he's doing for her and what he's doing in his world. So her emotions are being driven by the sense of magnification and of rejoicing. And her choices, her whole, her whole being are wrapped up in magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God, my Savior. And so uh, you can see even the, the parallels that are in uh, this kind of title of the song. My soul is, is a parallel to my spirit. It's not trying to say those are two different things. It's talking about the same thing. It's, it's in parallel. My soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices. Um, those terms are, are supposed to be parallel with one another. This idea of magnification or enlargement that is directly connected to rejoicing. None of us rejoice over things that we care small about. Right? Uh, and so this magnification, this rejoicing, uh, it's located in her heart, in her inner being, and it's directed. So where is it? It's in her soul. Um, what is, is this magnification, this enlargement, and who's it for? It's for the Lord, and that's parallel with God, my Savior. All right? You see the parallels of those two lines. And so who this is directed to is the Lord that Mary f- refers to as God, my Savior. Okay? Mary knows exactly who God is, and she knows what she needs from God. She needs a savior, and she is worshiping him for being that savior. So she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Has the idea of enlarging or, or making him great. Um, I'm, I'm sure you probably know this, but um, the reality is that even when we say we glorify God or we make God great, it's not that we're actually making him any greater, right? We're not adding anything to God. We're just changing our perspective, Right? So our souls are making much of him. He already is great. We didn't make him any bigger or better. It's just that we're recognizing it. And so when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's saying, I'm seeing his greatness. And, and it amazes me. It's this idea of adoration. Uh, a, couple, a couple years ago for our, one of our anniversaries, Kathy and I took a trip down to Los Angeles and went and visited a couple uh, places that we really wanted to. And one of them uh, that we went kind of right at sunset was the Griffith Observatory. 
I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Griffith Observatory. Um, it's, it's an amazing place. Telescopes all over the place. Um, lots of exhibits within the Griffith Observatory. It's up on a hill. Um, I always say uh, the same thing is true of LA, as I say of lots of cities. Um, at night, it looks beautiful from far away. So, um, but Griffith, Griffith Observatory, it's up on the hill. Uh, it's a fantastic spot. Um, and, and so you can, you can actually go up to all these different telescopes that they have, and, and they have people standing there that are telling you, like, here's what you're seeing, because, of course, I have next and no idea. I'm just nodding. Sure, that's great. Um, they have these giant telescopes um, that have done in-depth uh, studies of things that are in space. But um, two things really struck me the most while I was at Griffith Observatory. Uh, number one, we walked past an exhibit that I didn't even realize this was still like common scientific talk. I kind of thought that this was, that we had kind of moved past this, but um, they had a whole display um, that was explaining the, the Big Bang Theory, um, which is what I called it growing up. The theory that there was a bunch of uh, just particles floating around in space, and then they all collided and exploded, and it turned into our, turned into our solar system, um, which I, I thought, surely there aren't still scientists that think that that's a plausible theory. Uh, but if you go to the Griffith Observatory, it actually is up on the wall, and you can see this whole theory that particles ran into each other, and boom, that's how we got our universe. So that was really striking, uh, number one. Uh, number two, the thing that struck me was they had this huge exhibit on the moon. And, uh, and I, I was learning all kinds of stuff about the moon uh, that I didn't know. And uh, I kind of hate to admit this because we all hate to, uh, you know, not knowing things. Um, but I, so I, this was like two years ago. So, you know, I'm a 38-year-old I'm um, grown person. And I come to the realization as I go through this exhibit that I have only ever seen uh, the same side of the moon. All right, and I realize there's many of you out there and you're like, yep, a little late to the party. We knew that since like elementary school when we learned that. I must have been sleeping during that class or something. But guys, we have only ever seen the same side of the moon uh, because as it's orbiting the earth, it's rotating at the exact same speed. And so we only ever get to see the, the same side. And, and that was like really striking to me. I, I don't know how I'd missed it. And, and so all of a sudden I had this thought about the moon that I had never had before. Uh, some people, you know, falsely call the other side the dark side of the moon, you know, and they explain, no, you should call it the far side of the moon. It's not that it's dark, it's just you don't get to see it until we send astronauts to take pictures. But the point is, all of a sudden, I saw something about the moon, and I thought it was amazing. And I was like, Kathy, listen, listen to what it says about the moon. And she was like, yep, that's how it's always been, you know, that we've seen the same side of the moon. But all of a sudden, I had an enlarged impression of the moon. Right? I had an, I, my perspective changed about the moon because I learned something. And, and in that way, all of a sudden, I, ha, I had a whole new way of looking at the moon. Guys, I didn't make the moon any bigger. I didn't change the moon's size or its rotation. I changed nothing about the moon. But my impression definitely changed. And what Mary is doing when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's not changing the Lord or adding anything to the Lord. It's just that she's seeing him in, in a new and a fresh way that causes her to respond, and her response is adoration. And, and that's what your response should be and what my response should be, um, even as we come into a Christmas season, that we should respond with this sense of adoration and the sense of rejoicing. What, what is it that, that she is um, adoring him for and, and, and rejoicing? It's for what follows in the rest of the song as she considers what he has done for her. And so what Mary does as she, as she really meditates, as she thinks on his greatness, she does what countless other Bible passages have done, which is there are real human people that, that have stopped and have thought about the greatness of God. And that thinking has driven them to, to write and to feel and to worship in ways that they never would without this consideration 
which is, which is why I'm encouraging you today to consider what the sovereign Savior has done for you. Both men and women throughout the pages of our scripture, uh, men like Habakkuk, who wrote this in Habakkuk 3.17, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That is a man that says, my circumstances aren't gonna be what drives my joy. It's not gonna be about how much wealth I have or how comfortable my life is. What is gonna drive my rejoicing, what is gonna drive my joy is the God of my salvation. And, and when Mary prays, I rejoice in God my Savior, she's merely reflecting what, what Christian people, or not Christian people, what Old Testament people like Habakkuk have said all along, which is that we rejoice in the God of our salvation. I think Mary's song also has lots and lots of connection to uh, another amazing prayer um, of a different woman, and I want us to turn there because I want you to see this. So 1 Samuel chapter number two. Would you turn there with me? I want you to see uh, again that, that Mary's, her rejoicing and her magnification comes in large part to her, her biblical literacy and is very much connected to prayers and songs that have come before her. I think 1 Samuel 2 uh, is one of those passages that has the most in common um, with Mary's Magnificat, with her song of praise. Um, 1 Samuel 2 is a different woman's prayer. It's Hannah's. But as we read through Hannah's prayer, I want you to already be thinking about connections between words that Hannah prays and words that are in Mary's song. Hannah prays in 1 Samuel 2.1, and she said, My heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Right? You, you see some of the similarity between exalting in the Lord and rejoicing in salvation. Right? That's a, that's a parallel theme in both of these prayers uh, and songs. Uh, Verse number two, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. It sounds a lot um, like when Mary says, holy is his name. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. We're going to get there, but Mary's going to have um, some great things to say about how God humbles the arrogant and brings them down. But Hannah says, don't talk so proudly, don't let arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Right? And this is also something you're going to see in, in Mary, this concept that the strong God ruins and the feeble God helps. Right? If you want to put yourself in the place of God's blessing and help, you don't want to be the self-made man or woman. You don't want to be independent. You want to be broken. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, not rich in spirit, right? Because the poor in spirit are the ones that inherit the kingdom of God. She says, those who have full, in verse 5, have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. Both of these ladies have a very clear concept of the sovereignty of God. It is the Lord who kills and the Lord who brings to life. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There is so much overlap between what Hannah prays in 1 Samuel 2 and what we see Mary doing uh, in Luke chapter number 1. But regardless of whether it's Habakkuk, um, whether it's Hannah, or now whether it's Mary, the point is these are people that have considered, they have stopped to think about what the Lord has done for them. So are, are you doing that? Are you stopping in all of the busyness of everything else that you're doing right now? Are you intentionally taking time to stop and consider what is it that the Lord has done for me? Listen, beloved, don't miss it. Don't, don't miss the pause to consider what God has done for you and all of the rest of your frantic, whatever else makes you frantic right now, the amount of family that you have coming over, the amount of cooking you have to do, the amount of shopping you have to do, the amount of other whatever, things that you have to do, don't miss it. You need to stop and consider what is it that the Lord has done for me. Mary didn't get to the point where she's able to sing this song just instantly. This was really the fruit of her thinking and meditating and considering and knowing scripture and then applying it to where she's at. This was a fruit of considering, all right? Same as it would be for the psalmist that maybe she even echoes from Psalm 103.1 when David wrote, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. If you want your soul and everything that is within you to bless the holy name of God, like David and like Mary here, then you're going to have to consider what it is that he has done for you. And so what Mary does in this song is she actually tells us what it is that, that God has done for her. He, she says, first of all, he has looked, in verse number 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That idea of looked is the idea of loving care. It's actually the same word is used uh, in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1, 11, Has the idea that God considered me. Like, it, it, it's, not, it's not just that his gaze passed over and went somewhere else. The idea is God fixed his loving, careful attention on me. He, he looked on me. And what Mary says God looked at, what he paid attention to, was the humble estate of of his servants. What, what God drew his attention to in Mary's life was her humility. Augustine was the one who said, for those who had learned God's ways, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second, and humility is the third. The point is, what God looked at in Mary was humility. And, and when God looked on that, listen, all of that, all of that that humbleness, that humiliation, that, that state of, of being, being humbled. And for all of her poverty and youth and everything else that would have been true about Mary's life, she had a God that looked at her. And when he saw her humility, there is this amazing outpouring of blessing that she then receives. He looks on her, which is true for you and true for me today, right? God's gaze does not just skip over you you're not forgotten in the attention of God, despite the fact that there are millions and billions and have been throughout human history, lots of other humans. God knows you specifically, right? 
He is a God who is near at hand and not a God who is far away. And so he looks at at the humble estate of her as his servant, and then he blesses her. She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I don't think this is like a, uh, you might call it like a humble brag. Um, This is not Mary saying like, actually pay more attention to me, right? This isn't her lifting herself up when she says, um, all generations will call me blessed. This is not her patting herself on the back. Um, I've heard some of the kids describe this as flexing, right? This is not Mary's flex. Look how blessed I am, right? Um, This is Mary actually just recognizing in humility what God has decided and what God has decreed. She wasn't the one who made herself blessed. We already read earlier in Luke 1 that the Holy Spirit was the one that blessed her. And when Elizabeth declares that she is blessed, the blessing comes from God. Right, So this isn't Mary being um, falsely arrogant. This is reality. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Uh, Listen, I I know it's easy for us, especially as people who resist a lot of the false teaching uh, of the Catholic Church, that we get scared sometimes talking about Mary and what has wrongly enlarged her to a point of somebody that people pray to and worship and think can take away their sins and think was in some way sinless and lots of other wrong ideas about Mary. Right? But, but, you, but you can't miss it. Right? Listen, there has only been one mother of Jesus. Only one. Uh, and all of the millions of ladies that have ever been alive, there was only one Mary. Right? All generations declare that she is blessed. Why? Because she is the one chosen for this incredible, difficult, miraculous, amazing, painful position of being the mother of Jesus. Uh, Listen, every mom out here has a unique um, affection and connection to their children, right? And your child is, and a lot of times in your mind, they're the best. You can't ever imagine loving someone else's child like you love your own child because they're yours, right? Um, But at this point, whether we are male or female, we have to realize that what's going on for Mary is she does indeed have the ideal child, She has the one that we would all love and worship and adore. She does have the best child. And that's her joy and her privilege and her blessing. That's what God did for her. She got to be called blessed. Not to be called sinless. She declared that she needed a savior. Uh, not, not, that, um, not that she had um, some kind of special spiritual connection with God that's not available to you. No, but what she had was blessing to be the mother of Jesus. And so she reflects that in the song. She's considering this incredible blessing. Listen, are you considering the incredible blessings that God has given to you? Is that part of what you're even thinking about when we come to Christmas time, that you are considering the incredible blessings that God has poured out on you? Because if you will consider it, I'm confident it will drive you to adoration. It will drive you to consider what great things God has done for you. I also think um, that... Verse 49 is, um, it's, it's a fascinating verse because what she says is, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary says that when she considers um, what makes God great, he used his might to do great things for her. But think about this thing that she says was great for her. Much as we think like, this is incredible. She, like, Mary, Mary is the mother of Jesus. Think what came along with this great thing. Because there's a whole variety of things for Mary that probably were not uh, great things. For instance, uh, all, of the, all of the rumor mill that went around whispering, was this really, was that Joseph's baby? Was that a Roman soldier's baby? Who's, whose baby is that? The, 
the shame and, 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 and the reality that, that Mary uh, carries throughout her life? What, what about the burden that she bore throughout her life, the unique burden as, as a mom, as she grapples with, who is this son of mine? Uh, as, as she goes through things as excruciating as the crucifixion, where she is, she's physically standing there looking at her son, who her, her, her beliefs are telling her is also the, the son of God, who is dying right now. Like, can you imagine the conflict in her heart emotionally and mentally and spiritually as she grapples with who is this and what is happening? What she describes as a great thing in many ways is a giant burden on the life of Mary. And yet, in faith, she calls this miraculous conception a great thing. That's her, that's her faithful response to what God has decreed. She says, when the angel says, this is what's going to happen, she doesn't say, whoa, 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 time out. Like, whoa, didn't sign up for the whole um, having, a, having a miraculous conception. Like, wait, wait, you're going to have to explain more. No, she says, let it be as you have said. Right? Her response of faith is from the moment uh, that the angel first talks to her, and, and she has this response of faith that says, the one who is mighty has done something great for me. And I think there's times that we need to stop and consider um, what God's great things are in our lives, and a lot of times we just look for the things that we think feel good and look great. And the reality is that some of God's great things might look more like a burden until you stop and consider what's actually going on, until you have the eyes of faith. Right? There are a variety of things that we carry as burdens that if we would just have the eyes of faith that Mary has for this miraculous conception, that we would also say, God has done something great for me. So consider what it is that God has done for you because if you'll consider, you'll respond by adoring his holy name. God is unique. There's none like him. And so we adore him. Not only that, um, Mary has one final personal reason to magnify and rejoice, uh, and that's in verse number 50. His mercy is on her, just like it's on all those who fear him from generation to generation. God's loving kindness, his faithfulness to his promises is, was on Mary, and his mercy is on you as well, right? His mercies are new every morning. So are you considering every morning God's great faithfulness? Because our hearts ought to be responding in adoration, which they're not going to be if we're not considering things like his faithfulness, his, his mercy, all right? So uh, as, we, as we try to tell our hearts, um, which is our, our thinking and our feeling and our choosing, that, that we want to be adoring the sovereign Savior, um, we first want to consider what, it he, what he has done for us. Um, but Mary is going to move on in this song, and she's going to spend just as much time uh, seeing what he is doing in his world, Right? So we have to consider what he's done for us personally, but we also need to see what he's doing in his world. And that's the second half of, of the song. And there's really a transition um, as she talks about generation to generation. Verse 51 kicks off this transition to no longer thinking um, about Mary just personally, but what God is doing in his world at large. What is he doing um, with this intervention, this, this incarnation? What is he doing when he interjects Jesus into the world? What he's doing in verse 51 is he's showing strength with his arm. And he's scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's bringing down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalting those of humble estate. He's filling the hungry with good things. And he's sending the rich away empty. And he's helping his servant Israel. All these things are the things that the sovereign God is doing in his world through the birth of Jesus. What the Messiah would bring 
would be a moral reversal and a social reversal and a, and a material, spiritual reversal like our world has never known before. And Mary spends just as much time praising God for his work in his world as she does on his, on his work for her personally. Uh, and I think there's even instruction in that for us too, right? Uh, we need to be rescued from our own natural self-centeredness. And a lot of times when we say we need to adore or worship, we just turn, whoop, the gaze goes in, right? This is what God has done for me, right? And it's right for us to consider what God has done for us. I'm just saying that that can't be the only thing that draws praise and adoration from you because God is not just doing work for you. He is doing work in his world at large. He's doing work in, in his church, right? There's more going on than just you, Right? So as, as much as we could be thankful for God's individual work, uh, we ought never become self-centered and think that God's whole existence is all about us as an individual. No, God is doing a corporate work that we also should be aware of. Um, like I said, we all have this natural self-centeredness um, that, that we need reminders of like, oh, you're, you're not the only one. You're not the only being that God is concerned about. Um, and so it's good for us, even as we adore God, to think about what else God is doing. So even in that, I'm encouraging you this Christmas season, definitely think about what God has done for you personally. Um, definitely think about Jesus Christ being born to save you from your sins. All of that is right and good. It's just that that's not all there is to our adoration, right? It's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about what God is doing in his world. And that too makes him great, Okay, so, so just like I needed to have a, an enlarged vision of the moon that included there's a whole other side that I've never seen before, um, we also need to have an enlarged vision of God that says it's not just about him doing something for you. Uh, this is about him doing something globally and, 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 and in, in a much bigger sense. All right, and, and what, is it, what is it that he's doing? Well, you have all these action words. He's showing strength. He's scattering the proud. He's bringing down the mighty. He's exalting the humble. He's filling the hungry. He's sending away the rich, and he's helping Israel. You see all those action words that are in the second half of, of this song. So, says, she says, um, he has shown, sh he, that's hard to say. He has shown strength with his arm. And he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. When have we ever seen God in the past scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts? Um, even as a good uh, Bible student, um, Mary probably would have known places like Daniel 4, right? Um, when, when you have the arrogance of kings of world empires that God humbles to the point where they go about on hands and knees and they're like animals, and their hair grows out, and they eat grass like a cow, right? That's the kind of humiliation that God is able to bring those who are proud in their thoughts, right? To those kings who say, is this not great Babylon that I have built? And God is able to humble those who are proud in their hearts. And you see this contrast that Mary keeps coming back to, that, that he's scattering the proud, he's bringing down the mighty from their thrones, but at the same time, he's exalting those of humble estate. Mary understands that this is the way of God, right? And this is the same whether you're in Old Testament or New Testament, right? Um, there are not many mighty, not many noble, not many rich, right? Jesus said it was, it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven than to go through the eye of a needle, a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? Um, God's perspective is so many times flipped from our perspective, right? And what God does is he brings down people that our society says are mighty and exalts those who are humble, right? If you had to pick somebody for Jesus to enter the world through, would you really pick somebody as poor and as humiliated as Mary, a, a young girl from, from a know-nothing family in a know-nothing town, 
Is that really how you would do it if you were God? Well, the answer is yes, if you were God, that is exactly how you'd do it. But the point is that God's perspective is uh, not the same as our perspective. He doesn't go to the mighty and the rich and the powerful and say, yes, we ought to get the most powerful influencers of culture, and that's who is going to bring in the gospel message, right? We don't have to get the most famous athlete or musician or whoever else, and that's going to be what's going to change the world, right? Jesus goes to Mary. He He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things, and the rich he sends away empty. Psalm 107.9 says, He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This is the way of God to fill the hungry with good things. It's certainly true spiritually. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness They are filled. God faithfully keeps all of his promises to his people. This is what God is doing in his world. As the sovereign God, he's humbling the proud and exalting the humble. He's blessing the poor and emptying the rich. And he's faithfully keeping his promises to his people. Notice what Mary says as she comes to the end of her song. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She knows about the promises that God made um, all the way back in the Old Testament times. Notice all the people that God is acting on in his world throughout this song. He starts with his servant Mary and ends with his servant Israel. I think there's a bookend there on purpose. His servant Mary and his servant Israel. But he is also acting on people who fear him. People who are proud, the mighty, those who are humble, uh, the hungry, the rich. All of those are people that God is sovereignly interacting with in his world to accomplish his purposes. And and what Mary says is what God has been doing throughout history is, and what he's doing now in the coming of Jesus is helping his servant Israel in remembrance. He's remembering his mercy. It's the same thing that he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Can I ask you, why does it matter to you, a New Testament Christian, that God keeps his promises to Abraham? I would assume that the majority of us in this room today um, are not Jewish. Um, Probably most of us are are Gentile. Um, Why does it matter to you, a New Testament Christian, that God keeps these promises? Why why should you read the end of this song and not just like discard that and go like, I don't know what's going on with Abraham and his offspring, but I'm not one of those, so I'm going to move on to other reasons to adore. No, what I'm saying is within the song itself, you should find reasons to adore Number one, it matters to you that God kept his promises to Abraham because it matters that we have a God who is faithful, right? You don't want to have a God that's true to you one day and then just abandons you the next, right? And what you see God doing with Israel is incredible faithfulness in the face of them sinning against him, rejecting him. Even when Jesus would come, he comes to his own and his own people receive him not. And yet you see this faithfulness on the part of God caring for his people. That's the kind of God that I want to adore. I want to have that kind of God who is faithful to all of his promises. So it matters to us that God is a faithful God. But it also matters to us that God keep his promises to Abraham because in Christ, Abraham's promises are your promises. All right? In Christ, Abraham's promises are your promises. Uh, If you're here this morning and you are Jewish, then the promises that God makes to Abraham are yours based on grace, right? 
So when God made these promises to Abraham, you think about the Abrahamic covenant. This is why like Old Testaments matter, right? Uh, so when God makes the promises to Abraham, what is Abraham doing when God makes the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham? What's, what's Abraham doing? What's his part in God making these promises? Abraham is, like some of us feel this morning, sleepy, right? Uh, Abraham is asleep, right? Abraham is not an active participant in this promises that God makes to him. God makes it abundantly clear this is my promises to Abraham. This is not about what Abraham's going to do for me. This isn't Abraham saying, okay, I'll keep my end of the bargain. You keep your end of the bargain. This is God saying, these are my promises. Right? And Moses would tell us in Deuteronomy, the reason God picked the Israelites to be his people was not because they were more in, in number, but he says, I loved you. Do you know what he says in Deuteronomy? I loved you because I loved you. That's the answer. Why did God set his love on Israel? He says, I loved you because I loved you, right? The point is, this is God's sovereign, gracious choice to love the Israelites and to make promises to him, to them, right? And in Christ, those promises are our promises in terms of grace because if you're, if you're not Jewish, the promises that God made to Abraham are also yours on the basis of grace and not on the basis of works, right? So, as, as a non-Jewish person, I get to be grafted into the promises made to Abraham. These are my promises that, that, that he would be a blessing to the nations and, and that there would be a kingdom, right? And that there would be a people. I get to be the people of God, even though I was far off from God. I was not close. I was far away. And yet in Christ, he has brought me near. He's, he's adopted me into his family, right? He's made me his, not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of what Christ has done. So when it says he's helping his servant Israel, he's remembering his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever, listen, those are for you in Christ. So it, it matters a great deal for us that God keep his promises to Abraham, to know what those are and to know how God is keeping them. And the answer to how God would keep his promises to Abraham and the answers to how God would show strength, how God would, would lower the, the proud and raise the humble, the answer to all those things is found in a person. It's the person that Mary is celebrating in this song. How does God bring down the mighty? How does God fill the hungry? How does God help his servant Israel? The answer is the baby that Mary is carrying, right? It's through Jesus that God does all of these things. And in that way, the second half of Mary's song almost functions as a prophecy. What God has done now in this miraculous conception is he's now accomplishing all of these works in his world. Right? And that causes us to adore our God when we consider what he is doing in our world, in his saving, humbling, redeeming, rescuing, exalting work that is done in Jesus. It causes us to adore him as we look around and see that he's not just doing that for us, for me personally. He's doing that at large in his world. He's doing that in his church. He's doing that around the world, right? So, as we conclude today, let's let's consider what could possibly be an obstacle to our heartfelt rejoicing. What, what could stop us? If I am trying to um, encourage you and compel you to adore the sovereign Savior, what could possibly be an obstacle to that? Why aren't we just doing that naturally? Why do we need a message on that? Well, just a couple thoughts. Um, one obstacle to your heartfelt rejoicing this Christmas season uh, is being an unbeliever. If you haven't put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, then you, you will not have a kind of response to Jesus that is one of adoration and of worship. 
And you'll come to Christmas and you'll go through a bunch of motions. Maybe even for you, you've done lots of Christmases and you have a manger in your house and and you talk in generic terms about Jesus, but there is no heartfelt response to him. There isn't something in your thinking and feeling and choosing that says, this is not just about a baby in a manger. This is my Lord and my God and my Savior and I trust him completely. Listen, if you have not believed that Jesus is your only hope for salvation, that this one who was a baby lived a sinless life And then he died on a cross, not just as some kind of example or not as some kind of tragic incident, but he was dying on the cross to take away your sins. In fact, the only way to take away your sins. And and then not only that he died, but that he rose again. If you don't have that belief, if you don't have that faith, then you do not have the capacity for this kind of heartfelt rejoicing. And to you this morning, I would just plead with you, let today be the day that you put all of your faith in this Jesus that, that would cause you to have the kind of adoration that you see displayed by this incredible young woman that adores him with all of her heart. So if you're not an unbeliever, that's going to be a major obstacle to your heartfelt rejoicing. Another obstacle to your heartfelt rejoicing, if you are a believer, is if you have unseated God with other priorities. So if other priorities are taking up more of your mental energy, uh, if you emotionally are caring about more things than, than God, if you're making choices that, that are actually functionally making the things of this world more important than, than God, you have unseated God with other priorities, then, then you will find yourself inhibited from this kind of wholehearted adoration of this great saving God. You could also be thinking more deeply about your unfortunate circumstances than God's purposes. If you spend more time thinking about what you consider your unfortunate circumstances than the purposes of God in your life, then, then you will be blocked from adoring him the way you ought to. If you feel more strongly about your wants than God's will, you will be inhibited. You will, you will have an obstacle to this heartfelt adoration. If what you want is more important to you than what God wants, then you're certainly not going to adore him in, in the way that we see reflected in this song. And I think a final obstacle for us to consider to our heartfelt rejoicing is if we are choosing worldliness over godliness, right? So if we have become so consumed with the day-to-day, with the mundane, with, with, the, with the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, right, the love of this world, if that's what has consumed us, then we will lack the capacity to adore our God, right? Because what ends up looking really, really important is what's right around you. What, what, what you see, what you feel, what you're choosing, everything that's right here becomes more important than what is true about God, right? So these are obstacles to our heartfelt rejoicing that I hope you'll consider and that you'll even uh, overcome this Christmas season. Our adoration of our great God does not come just by deciding that we're going to adore him. It certainly doesn't come if you do absolutely nothing at all. What, what we have to do is consider and see what God is doing What you see in this song, again, is the fruit of Mary's theology, but you don't see any of the work that went behind this song, right? You just get these words, these words that came out of hours of meditation and considering and thought. But we ought to let these words drive us to a wholehearted adoration of our great sovereign God. In some ways, what I hope you'll do even this Christmas season is is grow your worship muscles, Right? It is a muscle to worship, to adore, that we have to work out. Right? And so as you, as you consider the birth of Jesus this year, can I, can I just encourage you to grow in, 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 your, in your worship, the, the response of worship, 
that worship muscle of I adore you. I, I don't just think in terms of this world. I think in terms of what God is doing. Um, you have another chance ahead of you in the next couple weeks uh, to grow in your worship, your adoration of this God who became man. So will you take every advantage, every opportunity you have this year uh, to consider why you personally should be adoring the sovereign Savior, and secondly, to see what the sovereign Savior is doing in his world.